Well, we're right in the middle of the series that I'm calling Rethink Church, and I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word church or when you think about church. You may think of the bruises that you have because your mom would pinch you on the arm during church to keep you awake or to get you to stop poking your sister or whatever. Uh, maybe church to you is growing up watching your neighbors leave the house on Sunday morning all dressed up and, and kind of wondering why they would do this every Sunday morning. Maybe church has been a bad experience. Maybe uh, you can't even really believe that you're here this morning. You, you'd rather not talk about it. Um, maybe you're like me and you just grew up in the church and uh, you've always loved the church. For a lot of people, church gets boiled down to a Sunday event, uh, classrooms, a flannel graph, a VBS, choir music, sitting through long lectures, uh, you know, sitting there wondering what's that musty smell, uh, counting panels in the stained glass or counting ceiling tiles or there's 722 in this room in case you're wondering. If you grew up in church, uh, there's all kinds of insider weirdness. Uh, if you grew up a preacher's kid like some of us did, uh, you've got your own set of issues. The challenge for us is to see the church, to view the church as it first began, because it didn't begin as a building, it didn't begin as an institution, it didn't begin with any hierarchy, it didn't begin around a bunch of programming, it, it didn't give any thought to its brand. The church began as a movement. So maybe uh, you're not really a church person, this is maybe new to you, maybe you're even skeptical and you can make your arguments, and we would maybe agree that you have reasons to be. Just let's understand this. <clears throat> the foundation of the church is not the teachings of Jesus, not even the activities of Jesus. It's one single event. And the event that the early church founders couldn't stop talking about was the resurrection of Jesus. And everywhere these followers of Jesus went, they talked about the resurrection. And they said, Jesus, who was crucified right over there, just a couple months ago, and he rose from the dead right over there. And suddenly there's all this activity and all this energy around this thing that we call the church. These first century Jewish people uh, flooded the streets of Jerusalem to say, <coughs> he's, he's risen from the dead, he's validated his message, and now through him we can have peace with God. And so suddenly this is a movement. The problem was in the first century in the city of Jerusalem, there was a very, very sensitive and somewhat tenuous balance of power uh, between Rome and the Jewish authorities who ran the temple. And the temple was the epicenter of Jewish life and culture. So there was this balance of power between, or that the Jewish leaders had and the Roman authorities that they, they tried to keep this balance intact because it allowed there to be peace. And suddenly, kind of out of nowhere, this peace is being disrupted by all this talk about Jesus, but this guy who, came, who, who shows up and claims to be the promised Messiah, and by this brand new movement that no one saw coming, and as a result, now there's some resistance. Now there's even persecution. And two of the church's first, first leaders, uh, Peter and John, they were arrested they spent the night in jail. Uh, they were told by the Jewish authorities to quit talking about the resurrection, quit talking about this name. 
And Peter and John, after spending the night in jail, I went back, they huddled with the other believers. We talked about this last time. And instead of hunkering down and, and agreeing, okay, we've got to tone it down now. Uh, we've got to tone it down just a notch. We've got to dumb down the message a little bit. Let's not talk about the J name for a few days. Maybe we could just talk about, I don't know, prayer, maybe some of the cool stuff that Jesus taught. But instead of doing that, <coughs> they, they got together after spending the night in jail and they prayed the first recorded prayer in the history of the local church. And here's what they prayed. They said, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great, here's the word, boldness. To which we would say, time out. I mean, boldness, that's what you're praying for? Boldness is what got you in trouble in the first place. I mean, you still smell like jail, for crying out loud. And now you're praying for more boldness? So they went back out into the streets and they continued to preach, knowing that they were going to get themselves into trouble, but they just couldn't be quiet. This is a little bit strange to me. <clears throat> we live in one of the safest nations in the whole world. Most of us live in the safest parts of one of the safest nations in the whole world. And we still do life like we're scared. We're still overcome with worry like everybody's got to have a helmet and a seatbelt and a home security system and you can never have too much insurance. And listen, that kind of thinking creeps into our Christianity and consequently, we're not bold. We think we're oppressed and we think we're persecuted and we are so overly sensitive. And honestly, we are so worried and there are Christians all over the world that if they heard our prayers, they would probably laugh or, or maybe, maybe gag a little. When American Christians pray, you know, help us have a safe trip, they're like, have you seen our roads? I mean, we don't have seat belts because we don't even have seats in the back of this truck or this thing that we call a bus. We pray, oh Lord, bless me, help me, protect me. And I think there are Christians in other parts of the world that if they heard Americans pray, bless me, They'd be like, you don't have enough already? You have money in your cup holders. You don't even know where to keep all your money. The money on the floor of your car would feed my family today. And we're praying, Lord, bless me. I tell you, when you step back and you look at the church worldwide, and then you focus in on us, it's a little bit pathetic. With all the safety and protections and freedoms, we're still praying these little anemic prayers of bless me, help me, protect me. And I think the rest of the world is looking at us like, really, you, you want more? And listen, this seeps into our thinking as Christians and we allow our fear to erode our boldness. So this morning, as we continue to study what happened in those first churches, let's just agree, we've got to ramp up the boldness a bit, maybe quite a bit, because we're so afraid and we, we really have nothing to be afraid of. And let me just say this. If you're one who thinks that measures that have put, been put in place in response to the coronavirus are somehow an attempt to limit our religious liberties because we can't meet together the way we're used to, what we mean by that is the way we'd like to meet together, the way we're comfortable meeting, if that's where you land on that, then I think you and I have different definitions of oppression. That was editorial. Let me get to the story. Here's what happened. Peter and John get arrested. They get out of jail. They come out and they gather with the other, about 120 other followers of Jesus, and they pray for boldness. 
and they go out into the street and they keep preaching the message of Jesus and they keep preaching the message of the resurrection. And more and more and more people embrace this message. Word gets outside of Jerusalem that something big is going on. Hundreds of people from the surrounding communities begin to flock to Jerusalem and they bring their sick and their lame and their blind because they've heard rumors that there's a group of people that can lay their hands on the sick and they'll be healed. And the point of this healing was not so that these people would be healed because every single one of them who was healed eventually died, right? But this was a sign that God is up to something unusual. So now the city of Jerusalem, it's already full of guests because of the Jewish festival of Pentecost. Now there's even more people, and here's what's happened. The religious leaders who are trying to uh, maintain this delicate balance of power between, uh, you know, Rome lets us do this, but if we do too much, Rome's going to come and squash us. They're trying to manage this delicate balance of power, and these are experts in the law, they're experts in religion, and suddenly no one's showing up for their worship services. Suddenly, there are empty seats in the synagogues where the seats used to be full. Suddenly, here's the big one, they're losing influence. They're like, hey, how come you're not coming to hear us anymore? The answer was like, well, Peter healed my grandma, and John healed my son, and I mean, it's amazing, and they're not very good speakers, but all you ever did was just read us the prophets anyway, and we don't know what you're talking about. I kind of made that part up, but there's this disruption. And Luke tells us that The religious leaders became jealous because the people love these guys, these followers of Jesus. They love these guys. There are miracles going on, and, and these religious leaders are jealous. So now they send the temple guard in. They had a security team at the at the temple long before it was a thing in the 21st century. And they arrest all the apostles, all 12 of them, because there were 12. Um, and then and then Judas took his own life, and then they chose one more, so they're back up to 12. So they get the ringleaders, they're going to they're gonna leave them in jail for the night, and then they're going to bring them out the next morning and just kind of like scare the Jesus out of them. Luke tells us they threw them in the city jail, interesting detail. <clears throat> During the night, it says, somebody comes and opens the door, and all the apostles walked out. <laughs> the next morning, that's all the detail we have. The next morning, the religious leaders and the legal experts send to bring these guys out, and they're not there. And the next thing they hear is the apostles are back in the temple area preaching in the name of Jesus and talking about the resurrection. So now they're just absolutely furious. So they get the temple guard together and they give their orders that go arrest these guys again. And Luke says the temple guard goes to arrest them. And there are so many people gathered around them, you know, Peter, Andrew, James, John, all the apostles. There are so many people gathered uh, around them there that the temple guard, now they're actually afraid. Acts says they feared that the people would stone them. So they worked their way through the crowd, and apparently one of them went to Peter, because he's like the leader, or at least the spokesperson. And I, Peter, we were sent here to arrest you, so, um, but we don't really want to do that. So could you please arrest yourself, because we're like afraid to arrest you, because we're going to be stoned by these people. So Peter and the apostles stopped what they were doing, and as a group, they accompanied the temple guard to go back to the Sanhedrin. They basically placed themselves under arrest. They turned themselves in in order to give an account of what they were doing. So that's where we're going to pick up the story. In Acts chapter 5, verse 27. So the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin were the experts in the law. They were like, a, they were like the lawyers of the day. So to be questioned by the high priest, and the high priest, he's like the man. He's the guy with all the power. It says, we give you strict orders not to teach in this name. And this is really interesting. They don't even want to say the name. They don't even want to say the name of Jesus. 
I think it's interesting that even in our culture, a couple thousand years later, that that name is still disruptive. Isn't it interesting that on the job or with your coworkers or with your friends or with some of your family, you can talk about religion, you can talk about God, but as soon as Jesus comes up, it gets really uncomfortable. <clears throat> Keep reading. Yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. This is so important. This is two months after the resurrection. And the Sanhedrin is saying, <coughs> look, the way you tell the story, you make it look like we're guilty of this man's death. And Peter's standing there thinking, it's because you are. I mean, who are we kidding? This wasn't 50 years ago. This was two months ago. The reason it sounds like you're guilty is because you had him arrested. You had him tried in the middle of the night. You had him crucified. You are guilty. Verse 29. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed. So like there, I said it again. Sorry you're uncomfortable with that, but it isn't a secret. We're in Jerusalem. We were all there. Whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. And then here's the thing. Don't miss this. This is what puts Christianity in a different category. We are witnesses. So this isn't about something that we heard about. This isn't about something we just believe. This is about something we saw. We are witnesses of these things, his arrest, his trial, the flogging, the crucifixion, and this thing about him rising from the dead. We don't just believe it. We, don't just, we didn't just hear about it. We were there. We saw these things happen. It says, we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So Peter's just going to preach every time he's got a platform. So verse 33 says, when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. And that shouldn't surprise us. It sounds extreme, but it shouldn't surprise us because they put the ringleader to death, Jesus. So they're thinking, okay, we'll get, we got rid of one. If we just get rid of 12, maybe this thing will go away. And then something really fascinating happens, and I love this twist in the story. This is, this is cool, verse 34. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. So he says, guys, before we decide to execute another group of people, I've got an idea. Ask them to step out of the room, and I'm going to share my idea with you. So now Gamaliel addresses the Sanhedrin. <clears throat> verse 35. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. So let's, in other words, let's think about this, okay? Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody... And about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. So he says, guys, think about this. Remember, remember Thutis? And they're like, oh, yeah, I remember Thutis. We almost forgot about him. Apparently, Thutis somehow stirred up a group of people, about 400 followers. He was going to do something revolutionary. And Rome is like, I don't think so. And they squashed this like a bug, and his followers went away, and the whole thing died. Verse 37. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. So Judas the Galilean lived at a time when the governor decided to do a census. And the purpose of the census was to figure out how to collect taxes. That's usually the purpose of a census. And governments have to do this. They have to know how many people live in the country. This was a legitimate thing. But Judas the Galilean is like, no, 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 no we're not going to participate in a census. And he started a movement. In fact, the people who followed Judas the Galilean were that first group. They were known as zealots. 
And one of the followers of Judas the Galilean became one of Jesus' disciples. We know him as Simon the Zealot. So at this point, everybody in the room is kind of tracking with Gamaliel. And he, it says he too was killed and all of his followers were scattered. So he's like, remember, remember Judas the Galilean? We didn't get involved. If we gotten involved and supported Judas the Galilean, Rome would have gotten involved. And he, then Rome might have squashed us. But if we'd been against him, the, the people would have revolted. So we're just so you know, politically perfect when, in that one. So let, let's not get our hands bloody here. Let's just wait. Verse 38. Therefore, he's made his case. In the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. So in other words, if this is just another movement with people who have some radical idea or agenda, it's going to fail because Rome won't let it succeed. Because in the, in the first century, Rome wasn't against Christianity. Rome was just against anything that would disrupt their power and their authority. Verse 39, Gamaliel says, but if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourselves fighting against God. Now, pause and think about this. Here's what he's saying that the only thing that could overcome the power and control of Rome in this region of the world at this time, he says, is God. If there's going to be a breakthrough movement, if there's going to be a momentum that rolls out of this part of the Roman Empire, it will take an act of God. <clears throat> I've never visited the modern city of Rome. I would love to. Maybe you have. But you know what there are more of in Rome than any other city in the world? Crosses. Crosses that don't represent crucifixion as a means of execution, which was incredibly common, these crosses represent a single crucifixion that we only know about because of the resurrection. Oh, and there is no Roman Empire. But the city of Rome, it's considered by the rest of the world to be the epicenter of Christianity. And Gamaliel was right. The only thing that could strong arm Rome and create momentum bigger than the Roman Empire would be an act of God. <clears throat> the Sanhedrin liked his reasoning, verse 40. His speech persuaded them and they called the apostles in and had them flogged. And we're like, okay, keep, keep reading. But let's just stop for a second. <laughs> flogged meant nothing to most of us until we saw the Passion of the Christ a few years ago, Remember? Because flogged was like, oh, they, got, they were whipped, bummer. Flogged, in some cases, was a death sentence. Flogged was a cat of nine tails with pieces of stone and bone tied into these strips of leather, and a person was beaten until the skin was ripped off their backs. And so for several hours, the 12 apostles stood in line and watched as the temple guard flogged, permanently scarred the bodies of their closest friends, and waited their turn for talking about something they had seen with their own eyes. <clears throat> Do you ever wonder how you would respond to something like that? The, tempt the temptation is we read this verse and we want to just quickly move on to the next verse. But this was hours and hours listening to your closest friends screaming in agony and knowing that you're next because of something you said you saw and witnessed and experienced. If it was us, I'm afraid the thought of this would have been the end. That the message of Jesus never would have moved beyond the first century. But listen to their response, verse 40. After they'd been flogged, 
they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Ready for this? Verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Wait, 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 wait. You're permanently disfigured. You're probably going to get an infection from those wounds because life was hardly sterile. You're going to be in pain for weeks or months or for the rest of your life. For sure, for the rest of your life, people will see those scars and they will know that somewhere along the way, you are a criminal. It says they left rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. <clears throat> so um, I don't know, I don't really know what to say to that because we're so afraid <clears throat> that something negative is going to happen to us because we're Christians. <clears throat> In America, we're so upset that the government is trying to shut us down because we all know, you know, you can't be the church if you can't have church as we've always known it. Because we're so oppressed. You, you catching the sarcasm? You know, I've actually had people tell me that they're not coming back to church as long as they have to sign up for church. And as long as our teaching is on video because they refuse to play into the government denying us our religious liberties. The first century followers of Jesus would simply say, are you kidding me? To have lost something, to have given up something, to be physically scarred for the name of Jesus, it's the thing they would say that I'm most proud of. He gave his life for me, I gave some flesh for him. He gave his life for me, I gave up my reputation for him. He gave his life for me, I gave up my future for him. He gave his life for me, I gave up a relationship for him. That's how they thought. And here we live in the safest parts of one of the safest countries in the world. And we're afraid of what? Someone's not going to like us? We're afraid we might get a C if we speak our mind? We're afraid that they won't want to stand with us at our kids' game? We're afraid they won't want to do business with us? We're afraid we might not be invited to the Christmas party, the cool one? I mean, what happened to us? I'll tell you, we, we are so extraordinarily blessed, if that's the word you want to use. There's just no denying that we've been recipients of God's immeasurable grace. But instead of being good stewards of the blessing, we've become worshipers of the blessing. And we've shifted our focus from the blesser to the blessing. And we've allowed it to strip us of our boldness. And I'm not an exception. This is so convicting. It's why we'd rather talk about something else. Verse 42 says, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house. So this is after someone tended to their wounds. They've begun to heal. It says they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. What do you do with that? How do you respond to that? I mean, it's like, what now? at this point when I'm working on my, my notes and on my message prep, sitting at my desk, I'm thinking, what do you say after that? I mean, I love this story. It's inspiring. But what do you say after that? I, mean, I could tell you modern stories of people I've met personally, in my, like people that I've met who have been imprisoned and tortured for their faith. I could tell you stories about people uh, in other countries who've been ostracized and legitimately like really persecuted because they're Christians or maybe just because they're born to Christian parents. There are lots of stories like that, but they're stories that seem so far away. 
They're so far removed from us and from our, from our circumstances that we'd all go like, wow, that's an inspiring story. And then we just sing some songs and go to lunch. So instead, I want to do this. I want to offer some <clears throat> boldness baby steps, okay? And if you listen to this and you're like, Todd, compared to what the apostles went through, compared to what some Christians face today, this is nothing. I agree. I know. It's just where we are. So we got to start somewhere because we're the church. We're the church in a free society. We've been handed the church for our generation, and it's up to us. And someday we're going to get old and sick and die in one way or another, and we're going to hand the church off to the next generation, and they will inherit it in the shape that we leave it in. So we better get this right. And I think we better get bolder. So here we go. A few suggestions. Number one, bold is deciding to say something when it would be easier to say nothing at all. So that's what bold is for us in our culture. Bold is deciding to say something when it would be easier to say nothing at all. Because you find yourself in those situations all the time, don't you? Well, I could say something, but yeah, I don't, I don't want to make it awkward. I don't want to make it weird. I'm not going to say anything. Number two, bold is taking advantage of the opportunities that present themselves. Taking advantage of the opportunities, opportunities that present themselves. So like, like some of you like wear wristbands or t-shirts or some of you have tattoos and some of you play Christian radio in the workplace. You do this kind of stuff and you start praying for boldness. You know what you're going to notice? When you start praying for boldness, you're going to start running into opportunities. And for us, boldness is simply taking advantage of the opportunities that present themselves. Number three, boldness is creating opportunities. So in your, in your attempts to create opportunities, is it possible that some people might be offended? Yes. Yes, it is. But you will not be flogged. You will not be taxed more. You will not be thrown out of your community. <laughs> See, our threshold of pain and our threshold of fear and discomfort is so, so low. I mean, thank God we live in a society where that's the case. No, I'm not, don't get me wrong, but we've got to be careful not to lose our boldness. Because here's the thing about the church. Boldness is normal. It's how the church started. And to fall short of that is to really, I think, betray the people who gave their lives so that we would have the good news of Jesus. I mean, think about your own story. Aren't you grateful that someone was bold with you? Aren't you grateful that someone, you know, kept giving you those CDs and giving you those books with stuff somehow already underlined and highlighted? Aren't you glad someone kept inviting you and inviting you and inviting you? And, and then they invited your kids and that wasn't really fair because then your kids wanted to come back. And now you're here. <laughs> and it ruined your fishing. And it ruined your golf game. And it ruined your lawn care. And it just ruined your Sunday mornings. But you're glad because now you're, you've experienced peace with God. Now you know what it is to have joy. Now you have purpose. Now you have hope. See, sometimes the reason we're not bold is that some of us have been Christians for so long that we've forgotten what it's like not to have that peace with God. We've forgotten what it's like not to have that joy. We've forgotten what it's like not to have purpose and not to have hope. 
Some of us, it's like all we've known is following Jesus. And some of us are just too busy. Some of us are just too insecure. Some of us are just too distracted. Some of us are just focused on the wrong things. And so consequently, we're not bold. But that can change. Think about it. Boldness for the follower of Jesus is normal. And someday, somebody will thank you. And they'll say, I know that was awkward. I know it was risky. And I know I was a jerk to you at first. But thank you for being bold. Now, if you're here and you would put yourself in the, like, I'm not a Christian category, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, this is one of the things I can't stand about Christians. And I know why you think that. You're thinking, why can't they just keep it to themselves? The good news for you is that most of us do. Most of the Christians in your life are like undercover Christians. You don't even know they're Christians. Because most of us will never let on that we're followers of Jesus. We're good moral Americans, scared to death that it might cost us something. Uh, so, you know, you're, you're safe with us. But there are some of us who believe this. You may have heard this verse. We really believe that God loved the world. That's you. That God loved the world so much that he gave his son that whoever believes in him won't perish. That means their life won't lose all of its meaning and significance once they leave this life. It means that there's something beyond this life. And you know that because eternity is in your heart. Jesus came to solve the mystery of eternity, that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. Here's the thing about Christians and boldness. If we kept the spirit of the first century church, even if you never became one of us, you would like us. You would be in awe of us. You would look at the love that we have for each other and say, I don't know if I believe all the stuff about Jesus. I don't know about the resurrection part, but I'd like some of what you guys have. You would be drawn to us. You would love Christians even if you never believed in Jesus. And if that hasn't been your experience with Christians or with the church, that's on us. That's our fault. And if you're not a Christian, it's our hope that one day, maybe because of us or maybe even in spite of us, that you'll come to the realization that God has loved you so much that he gave his only son for you so that you could have a relationship with him and that you could have eternal life. If you're at that crossroads today and you're ready to take a step towards God today, maybe even to become a follower of Jesus today, I hope you'll come talk to me in a few minutes uh, before you leave this morning. Or if you're watching online, click the, prayer, the live prayer button uh, and we'll have a private conversation with you. But in the meantime, for the rest of us, we're praying for boldness. So we're going to learn to be bold, aren't we? We're going to say something when it would be easier to say nothing. We're going to take advantage of opportunities that just naturally present themselves. And then sometimes we're going to create those opportunities because that's what we've been called to. It's how the church made it out of the first century. And in the words of Gamaliel, it was indeed an act of God. And God has been active ever since, and we are part of the story. So let's continue to be a part of the story that God is writing.